I would give them a list of things they need to do, and they're already beating themselves up because they have a poor connection of their identity is woven in with their tasks. And so it's like, I just compounded shame by saying, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this, right? And so I think what we need to remember is that, of course, effective leaders always have a bias towards action, but belief drives behavior. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Well, I'm not alone today. I'm joined by our coaching manager, Olivia Graham. Olivia, it's great to see you. Thanks, Alex. So good to be here. And we're going to jump into a topic that I think is honestly really important for our team, um, but also it's something that we really care about because it's something, honestly, that we see a lot in the industry that makes us really angry and upset, and we want to protect our team from ever becoming. But then beyond that, one of the things that we always talk about here on the Path for Growth podcast and within the Path for Growth coaching community is that great leaders are great coaches. And so one-on-one coaching is certainly in the bread and butter of what we do. And Olivia's role specifically is she developed and now manages a system for training, developing, and holding accountable, I mean, really, really world-class, wildly effective one-on-one coaches for impact-driven leaders that own or run a business. But we also believe that if you are a CEO of an organization or a COO or an integrator in an organization, you're going to wear many hats. You're going to wear the hat of leader. You're going to wear the hat of vision caster. You're going to wear the hat of manager. You're going to wear the hat of mediator. You're going to wear the hat of therapist sometimes. You're going to wear the hat of friend sometimes. And one of the hats that effective leaders always wear is the hat of coach. And so therefore, we think it's really worthwhile to spend time on what do effective coaches do, but then also what do effective coaches not do? And so that's what we're going to focus on today is seven mistakes that amateur coaches make. And I think this is going to be really fun to walk through because I think there might be some spiciness embedded in this, at least for me, Olivia, Um, (laughs) just, just because, just because... I think that our industry is filled with so many amateurs. I mean, it just seems like everyone and their dog today, their favorite thing to do is to put coach of something. Someone added me the other day on LinkedIn that was embodiment coach. What does that even mean, right? And and then charge people to give them advice. And it just drives me crazy because I think that that tears apart what effective coaching actually is. And so with that, we're going to jump into seven mistakes amateur coaches often make. Before we actually jump into the seven, Olivia, anything else that you would highlight in terms of why it's so important for leaders to pay attention to these mistakes and to embody the opposite? When I pulled up this list that you sent over of what the seven are, I just think anybody who's in in business for long enough is probably going to fall victim to one of these mistakes. Like, I think it's just a given and bringing awareness 
is one of the best things that someone can do when they think about what they don't want and what they want. So I also think it would be really helpful for us to put in the show notes the seven qualities of effective coaching for great leaders or great coaches just for people to be able to revisit that because that's what you want. But then as we go through this seven, just being mindful of these are my guardrails and I don't want to go into this territory because if I do, man, I am not doing an effective job. That's so good. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I can get a little bit spicy around this topic. But in reality, right, these are all things that I think you and I would both say, oh, my gosh, I've done that before. 100%. Of course, we're all going to make mistakes. That's part of being human. The question in effectiveness is not, did you make mistakes? The question in effectiveness is, did you recover and how fast? Right. And what we don't want, the amateur is the person that just continues on in their foolish ways and never course corrects. The effective coach, the professional coach, holds themselves accountable and has other people holding them accountable to being the type of leader that is able to bring out the best in others. And I think that's why we're so passionate about this is because we believe the highest calling of a leader is to unleash the best in others. And we believe that these mistakes get in the way of doing that. Conversely, if you do the opposite of these mistakes, it makes you someone that's truly able to help people change their lives in so many different ways. And so with that, let's jump into the seven mistakes amateur coaches make. Number one is dogpile action items. So when you read this sentence, I guess, what came to mind as it relates to a mistake that coaches make, Olivia? Well, when I looked at the seven, I thought, well, that's the one that I definitely have done. Goodness gracious. This one to me is believing that your self-worth and maybe the person that you're working with self-worth is attached directly to how much you can get done. And I think that when I see dogpiling action items, which maybe we should define that to me, that is you are just giving them thing after thing after thing to do almost to the point where it's like, how could anyone feasibly do this in, in a timely fashion? That is you not having scope and perspective of the person that is sitting across from you and the humanity that they have. And I think about when I thought about this one, something that you said at a workshop this summer, I know I've shared this with you, is that a impact-driven leader is humble. And the definition of humility here is committing to do things with excellence. And I think that when you are an effective coach, you are aware of how many action items someone can do with excellence. And once you pass that line, you are diminishing the value that they can then bring to whatever it is that they're working on. And that's just something that you want to be aware of. Yeah, I think a question that's worth asking as a coach, as a litmus test, or even as a leader is, are these people leaving time with me more effective or just overwhelmed? Mm -hmm. And if people are leaving time with you impressed with how smart you are, impressed with your ability to think of things that they can do but wildly overwhelmed and not able to actually take action on any of the things you talked about, you failed as a coach, right? Conversely, if there's a, a couple high yield action items that these people are actually able to apply so that they're able to gain confidence 
well, then, man, that's going to be a game changer for that area of their life, but honestly, so many other areas of their life. I truly actually thought of this one as like, man, what did Alex do whenever he was 26 years old and he was a coach? And one of the things that I didn't know whenever I was 26 is that for highly driven people that are motivated by impact and that have a track record for achievement, one of the core fundamental negative emotions that often is driving that person as their shadow side is toxic shame. Right. Mm -hmm. What is toxic shame? It's uh, I'm not doing enough, but then I'm not doing enough very quickly transforms into I am not enough. And 25 or 26 year old Alex would look at that person that shows up to a coaching session and just says, I'm not doing what I should be doing for these people. and, And I need to be doing more of this and I have to be doing more than this. And I just need to be better. And 25 year old Alex would be like, well, great. Let me give you the seven books you should read and the 10 actions you can take and all the conversations that you can have. And it's like I would give them a list of things that they need to do. And they're already beating themselves up because they have a poor connection of their identity is woven in with their tasks. And so it's like I just compounded shame by saying you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. Right. And so I think what we need to remember is that, of course, Effective leaders always have a bias towards action, but belief drives behavior. And the way that you create transformation is by getting underneath the action items and focusing on the beliefs. And if you can help people gain a better, healthier, more productive belief system, then that's going to translate in the actions that you're looking for. Anything else that you'd add on mistake number one, Olivia? Well, I want to ask you a follow-up question. So if you're effectively coaching to the belief, then how do you tow the line between I don't want to give too many action items to I don't give them any action at all? And how would you how would you balance the the, the tension there between those two? Yeah. So I, I would say there's not necessarily a rule book to this. I think this lies definitely within the sphere of what we would refer to with our coaches as wisdom, right? Competence with regard to the realities of life is how Tim Keller would say it. And so you got to use nuance. But one thing that comes to mind for me is be reserved in the way that you assign action items. So resist the urge to dogpile. And mm-hmm. I would really challenge people make at least one of the action items you do give people related to their belief system. And so, so often when I'm having coaching conversations with people, and I've seen you and other coaches on our team do this as well, I like to really extract from people, what is the belief that's driving this behavior? Or what is the core limiting lie that is driving your behavior in this way? And oftentimes they'll say, I don't know. And then my favorite thing to say is, well, what would you say if you did know? And what's wild is after you ask them that question, they almost always have an answer, which I don't understand the psychology behind that, but it almost always works. And it's really crazy. And so you ask them, okay, but what would you say if you didn't know? And then they'll label something like, okay, well, I've got this lie that I'm not doing enough, or I've got this lie that I'm behind, or I got this lie that I should have it figured out by now. And what's so good is, I mean, it's one of the things that I'm really grateful for and that all of our coaches have owned or run a business themselves is it's like those lies are not foreign to me, right? I can empathize with every single one of those lies even today. 
But then the powerful question comes in asking, what is the truth that you deeply believe that counters that limiting lie? And you don't give it to them. You extract it from them. And then once they label that truth, build an action item around that. And so you say, that's right. What would it look like for you to journal about that truth that your identity is found in Christ and not the things that you do? What would it look like for you to journal about that truth three times between now and the next time we meet? And what we're trying to do there is, of course, we've got work to do, right? And I'm never going to be immune to the fact that it's like, okay, well, yes, I should be journaling some, but I also have work to do. And we're always going to assign action items around the work. And at the same time, we want to make sure that some of our action items, maybe one or two a call, are focused on the undergirding and overarching beliefs that are driving all of our behaviors. And what's wild is if every call you have one action item that's focused on changing someone's belief system. You look up in six months and it's like, oh my gosh, they're, they're doing stuff that is so much different, not because you're assigning new action items, but because they're having new thoughts and beliefs. And, and that's where I think real transformation occurs. So great question. Is there anything else you would add as it relates to that? Or how do you think about really making sure you're not piling on with action items, Olivia? I think the the thing I would add to what you said, which was so well said, and I'm really glad that I asked you that, and I see that in your coaching, and I've experienced that with you, is the power of restraint. And oftentimes when I'm piling on action items, that could be an example of me not showing outrageous intentionality with the things that maybe matter most. And thinking about if I had to limit myself, then what are the things I would assign? And then that somehow, when you think about it like that, just creates so much more power, oomph, magnitude behind the things that are on their plate. And if we're thinking about attention being a resource, well, the person you're talking to only has so much attention they can give to something. Don't you want them to give more wholehearted attention to a few things than less attention to many things? It's just going to increase the level of impact that they have and ultimately then your team has. Yes. The final thing that I think I wish someone would have told me that would have been really helpful early on is Alex, your ability to make book recommendations that people aren't actually going to act on is not helpful. <laughs> and so like, I mean, I, I, I think it was probably rooted in approval or wanting to impress people, but just the way my mind is wired, when people talk, I can think of a bunch of books and quotes and things that I've read that are associated with what people are talking about. And I often took that as a cue of, I need to mention every single one of those books. And it was honestly like a track record that I had that I didn't really love is everyone that I worked with could tell you the list of books that they've bought because of me that they had not yet read, right? And, it, and it's like, that's not great coaching, right? There's nothing, there's nothing good that is happening there. And so now I recommend books to people in a very reserved way and only if it's directly, like if it would speak to them like it's reading their mail. And I will even go so far as to tell people like, hey, I'm gonna send you this book and I only want you to read chapter nine. Chapter nine is for you. Or I'll take pictures of a couple pages from a book 
And I'll say, I thought of you when I read this. You don't need to read the whole thing. I just thought these few pages were really relevant for you. And, and I think that that's all related to like, are people leaving you more effective or are they leaving you more overwhelmed? And, and more overwhelmed might make you feel good that it doesn't actually help them. With that, let's go on to mistake number two. Mistake number two is trying to hit a grand slam with every meeting or every call. What comes to mind whenever you first think about this mistake, Olivia? It makes me think that you don't believe that your relationship with this person is in it for the long haul. And when you approach a coaching relationship with this scarcity mentality, it depletes your level of effectiveness because you're forcing something to happen. We all know that amazing feeling when someone genuinely has a huge breakthrough when you're when you're working with them and it's incredible. It's an elating feeling. But when you try to force it, oh my gosh, it's so sleazy, it's so uncomfortable and it just like deflates the entire conversation. And so I think when you approach your interactions with someone with this abundance mentality that not everything has to be a 10 for 10 An eight for 10 is just as good in, in some ways because it's consistently over time, then you're showing that you have direction for how this relationship's going to go. You're able to see into the future of how all of these little things adding up is going to lead to a big thing and that not everything has to be a big thing. And that's coaching. I mean, when you, when you look at the coaching podcast series that we mentioned, that's one of the five qualities of effective coaching is having direction. That's right. I, I think I actually learned this first in a, a friend context with you and Will before I ever brought it to a coaching context. There was probably about a year where I was having dinner at y'all's house probably every Wednesday night just about for, for a year. And I don't know that prior to that time, I could point to a ton of friendships that were not part of a other structured institution or activity or program or organization where I had such consistency, right? And I remember having this realization one time of like, oh man, Will and Olivia are different than me. <laughs> and that like, y'all just really saw value in spending time together and hanging out. And what I was evaluating sometimes the success of that hangout time on Wednesday night through the lens of, which first of all, evaluating the lens of a friendship hangout is kind of a little bit pure of, into my mind, right? But what I would use is like drama is the word I would use. I either wanted one of two things. I wanted someone was crying, right? Like absolutely bawling their eyes out. Or, which that's not going to be Will, that's going to be you or me if that happens, right? Right. And so I wanted that, or I wanted like rolling on the floor laughter, like uncontrollable, like just absolutely knock your socks off laughter. And anything that represented the middle of those two things or that represented moderation in some ways, I was like, gosh, I didn't bring my all tonight. Right. And, and that, I mean, that's a crazy perspective right now, looking back on it, it's like, oh my goodness. But what y'all taught me is like, there's so much value into being together. And what I saw is that, like you said, when you're committed to something over the long haul, the most valuable piece is not just these 
high highs and low lows, although it's super valuable to be in relationship with people during those times, the most valuable piece is shared context through the middle. And I think I took that and I realized, man, when I get into coaching meetings, if I'm not careful, I will try to over-dramatize everything because I've got this expectation of if this customer sitting across from me isn't either crying or isn't saying some joyful remark of, oh my gosh, my entire life has transformed and you transformed my life last month too and my life transformed the month before that. If they're not saying that, then I have failed. And it's like what that would cause is me coaching in such a way that put that person on this insane roller coaster that doesn't look like effective leadership because effective leadership is remarkably steady and consistent and it's gradual, a steady, deep-seated consistency over time. And so one of the things that I had to learn to go from amateur to professional is, dude, you don't have to hit a grand slam. It's okay that no one cried on this call, right? And your goal is making a deposit. Your goal is getting on base, and that's the focus. Anything else you would add to that before we move to mistake number three, Olivia? The only thing that I would add as as I look at the second one, Grand Slam Every Call, is that doesn't mean you don't show up to the time with thoughtful intention, and that doesn't mean that you're not receptive to these big moments. It just means you're not forcing it. Like I can so distinctly remember a time where I was on a coaching call and I said something to the extent of like, that's such a breakthrough you just had. And they're like, well, not really. (laughs) It was embarrassing and, and definitely a swing and a miss. And so I just think approaching it with, you're going to be in whatever room you need to be in and whatever capacity you need to be in with the person. And if they need a high, high or a low, low moment, you're there. And if they just need some reps and some middle, as you said, then you're there. That's right. And that's a good time spent. That's so true. And we know this from athletics. The most effective coaches read the player and say, what does this player need? And so we know from coaching CEOs that own or run a business, your visionaries oftentimes need you to be a source of stability and consistency and and just ruthless attention to the every single day nature of things, right? Because they're already on the roller coaster, right? They, They don't need you to turn up the speed on the roller coaster that they're already on. Conversely, a lot of times, someone that's more wired as an integrator might need you to say, hey, hold on a second. This is like a huge deal, right? I I don't want us to skip past this. I don't want us to miss this. Like, let's dive deeper. And so having the understanding to look at someone's temperament, someone's wiring, someone's tendencies, which all comes from context, and then coaching accordingly. With that, let's jump into mistake number three. Mistake number three is lack of preparation. I think amateur coaches fall for the lie that they can wing it. And what I've found to be true is that in effective coaching conversations that are led by a professional, that professional never wings it. Because professionals in general, in any arena, we can all say they don't wing it. They don't just phone it in. And so can you speak to the importance and necessity of preparation as it relates to this topic of coaching, Olivia? 
Of the three that we've walked through, this one makes me angry. I just think that showing up unprepared is one of the most disrespectful things that someone can do. And I think that as a coach, we are one modeling behavior that we are we are wanting the person that we're working with to then take to whatever sphere of influence they have and model that to those folks. And I think that when you show up unprepared, to me, that is such a display of telling the other person on the other end that, that they don't matter. And this kind of then connects to the principle of people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And preparation is such an example of caring for someone. And people are going to smell it a mile away when you have not prepared for them. And then they're not going to trust you. Maybe they won't consciously know that. And maybe they won't know it right away. But they will eventually know it. And then that's just where everything breaks down. That's right. I feel like it's maybe part of your reputation on our team, Olivia, which credit to you for this. Like you are known as someone that prepares very well. And I honestly view like when I see a meeting on my calendar that you're going to be leading, I know, man, that's going to be a really effective use of our time because I know that there's so much work that you're going to put into making that meeting an effective use of time. Hmm. That's a discipline. Right. And I know that that doesn't happen naturally. So what's in your mind or what's in your heart that gives you the ability to stick with that discipline to say, I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to apply time and energy ahead of this time to make sure that I'm really prepared. I truly believe that not everything, like we just said, has to be a grand slam. But I don't believe that you're even going to get to step up to the plate to have a good, effective call if you don't do your prep time. And so to me, it's like, what's even the point? Like if we, if we don't even have an at-bat because I didn't do my preparation, then we might as well not even use the time. And I think that I probably err on the side of, of all resources available to me. Time is the one that I put on the highest regard. I don't really know why that is, but it's just something that's constantly on my mind of using my time effectively and the time of others effectively. But there's something about if we're going to spend time on something, we're going to do it in a good way. And that's not me saying like going back to the Grand Slam, it needs to be this all out Grand Slam thing every time. But I think that that is a way that I tend to show people that they matter to me. And that's why I put so much time into it. Does that answer your question? I don't even know if I, if I really answered what, answered what you asked. No, I think you did. I think it was really helpful. And, you know, I think that this can become really practical, too, in that what do professionals do? Professionals have the meeting before the meeting, right? And so it's just scheduling a little bit of time. It can even be 20 minutes before to be thoughtful to be intentional, to ask what are the desired outcomes of this conversation? What, what is the agenda that we're going to follow in this conversation? What are some resources or thoughts that I want to share? And, and maybe here's a really good one that I think effective coaches uses. What are the questions that I want to be prepared to ask this person? Mm. You know, it always blows me away how much of an impact it makes whenever I get to meet with one of my customers and say, you know, I was thinking about 
our call this morning and I really wanted to ask you this question, right? Yeah. And, because all it does is convey thoughtfulness. And, it, and also my questions are way better when I prepare, not whenever I'm just, again, winging it and just pulling out what comes out. The other thing that I would say is I learned this in podcast interviewing. The best interviews I've ever done have a prepared structure and flexibility for magical moments to occur, right? And so you want enough of an outline and prepared questions and structure so that you have a game plan to operate from. But you also don't want to become so rigid that the the human part of what we get to do, the part that makes it not scripted, the part that makes it really powerful, the part where you're able to interject some of your art and your personality, you don't want to script that out of the process. And so it's one of the things that, gosh, I think you do really well. I think Kyle does it really well. I'm stoked about how well Matt, I think, is going to do this, is striking that balance of there is such a thing as over-preparation, I want to bring my best to the table so that whenever there is opportunity for those magical, life-changing breakthrough moments, we're able to seize those instead of just looking down at the script and asking the next question. Before you move on, can I say something to that? You mentioned that you feel like I do that really well. What's interesting is that's something I feel like I could do better slash have been working on. And the reason I bring this up is, one, I feel like that's something that you do masterfully. And with all of these, what's really cool is that these are skills that you can learn. And that's what's amazing to me about coaching is that it's not this thing that people who are elite can do. I think it's people who have a desire to make an impact in people's lives with awareness and then intent in these areas can get better at. Because I would say, I mean, honestly, this whole list, I feel like I've done every single one of them. And so just calling that out. That's right. And and then again, focusing on what, what do I want to be? What is the type of coach I want to be? And how do I recover? What I'd like to do is to say this has been part one of the seven mistakes of amateur coaching. And then we'll pick up in another episode into part two. Olivia, if someone is listening to this before we go and says, man, I'm bought in to this idea of playing the role of leader as coach, but I don't know where to start, what would your advice or counsel be on something that they can do between this episode and the next episode just to start taking some meaningful action on this topic? I really think going back and listening to the great leaders or great coaches, start with episode one of that series, which will give you just a really great insight into what being a great coach is. And then the last thing I would say is choose one person who you think would really benefit if you were to give your all in this area. So do for one what you would do for all by picking someone who you think man, if I were to play all out as a coach in this person's life, it would make all the difference. And don't obviously say like, now I'm going to be a world-class coach for this person, but just set some intent and, and pay attention to that one person rather than spreading yourself thin, trying to do this for 
a number of folks. Excellent. I love that as a takeaway from this conversation. And we will put the links to all of the episodes from the Great Leaders or Great Coaches series in the show notes of this episode. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.